No longer Genesis. Now we're in Exodus. We're going to be in chapter 1 this week, and I've titled my message, God's People Afflicted by Egypt. So as we get started in the book of Exodus, I want to point out some interesting facts. Uh, They're still alive in Egypt, and time has passed from when we, you know, for us it was one week since we've been in Genesis. For them, it was about 400 years. Now, the question becomes, why did they come to Egypt in the first place? And if you remember where we were, uh, when they came to Egypt, Joseph was sold as a slave and that's how he ended up in, G- in, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, in Egypt. But the way that the rest of his family showed up is that by God's grace, little by little, God put Joseph in charge. He was the second in command in Egypt. And because he was in charge, they had plenty of food in the time of a seven-year famine. So because they had food... And because God wanted them to be reunited with their brother Joseph and him forgive them for selling him into slavery, uh, that's why they came to Egypt. But the question is, why did God bring them to Egypt? See, we have reasons for why we do things, and then God works together for our benefit and for his glory, and he's doing things many times that we don't even realize. So we know why they came to Egypt, the practical reasons, but why did God bring them to Egypt? And the answer I have there for you is, number one, to prepare them for the land that he had promised to Abraham. Remember, he had promised in Genesis chapter 12, I'm going to bring you back to the land, I'm going to bring you into a land, I'm going to give you a land flowing with milk and honey, and there I'm going to establish you as a nation, and through your descendants... All of the nations of the earth will be blessed. Abram, uh, those who bless you, I will bless. And those who curse you, I will curse. But there's a second reason. He's going to prepare the land to receive them. You might say, that doesn't make any sense. Well, he's giving them a land that is already inhabited. It's full of people. And in Genesis chapter 15, verse 16 What God has already shown Abram is your people are going to be in a land that's not theirs. They're going to be foreigners. They're going to live as foreigners. They'll be oppressed by the people of that land, and that land is Egypt. And then I'm going to bring them out of that land, but not yet. Why? Because the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So there was this people that lived in Canaan, called the Amorites, and they were full of iniquity. And some people say that God, in the Old Testament at least, is this God of judgment and wrath, and then in the New Testament, he's this God of love. And I would submit to you that he's both in both Testaments. But in this case, what he does is he points out that the Amorites are this iniquitous people, and he's giving them time to repent. And if you think that God is quick to wrath, he sends the people of Israel to Egypt, no doubt, to be saved from the famine, but then he keeps them there for four generations, 400 years, to give opportunity for the Amorites, who were full of iniquity, to repent of their sin. They were bowing down to idols, 
Some of them were idols that were brass, and they would heat them up until they were molten hot with their hands. Molech had hands that were outstretched. And because of the way that they worshipped their idols, many times in sexual ways, they would produce these unwanted pregnancies, and they would lay these children as an offering to Molech on a brazen hot statue, and they would burn them to death. They would sacrifice them. So this is the iniquity that God's finally like, okay, enough. 400 years of this. And so when God judges these people, don't, don't think that it's because they, were, they didn't know any better or because they hadn't had the opportunity to do different. God gave them plenty of time. So he's preparing this land and he's going to use the people of Israel to judge the people of Canaan. And then he's going to give that land to the Israelites. So you might say that Egypt is an incubator for God's nation. Verse 1. Now these are the names of the children of Israel who came to Egypt. Each man and his household came with Jacob. And then he lists what we've already read at the end of Genesis. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan, Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. All those who were descendants of Jacob were 70 persons, for Joseph was in Egypt already. And if you look at the list at the end of Genesis, it actually doesn't say 70. It says less than 70 because they didn't include Joseph because he and his children, his descendants, were already there. So Joseph, verse 6, died all his brothers and all that generation. So the setting for the book of Genesis, or excuse me, Exodus, I'm so used to saying that, is now that this generation, Jacob and his sons have all died, verse 7 says, but the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. And so the sons of Israel arrived, Verse 2 through 5, we listed them, and there were 70 total. They entered into Egypt as a family, and they're going to leave Egypt as a nation. Uh, Joseph and his brother's generation have passed. It's been about 400 years. Uh, The descendants of Israel's sons, here's what they did. They were fruitful. Now, what's interesting about that is I was just meditating on that this morning, What did Joseph name his sons? He named them Manasseh and Ephraim. Manasseh means, I've forgotten my toil. And if you know the life of Joseph, his life was full of toil. But then he names Ephraim, Ephraim because it means fruitful. God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Which is kind of interesting because it's prophetic about what would happen to the entire nation. They're going to see, as we see today, they will be fruitful in a land full of affliction. And so they were fruitful. It says they increased, but it doesn't just say that they grew or increased. It says they increased abundantly. And then it says they grew mighty, meaning strong. And when it says they grew mighty, it says they grew mighty exceedingly. So The New Testament says that God's going to do a work in our day, excuse me, that that God does things above and beyond exceedingly what we could ask or think. 
So in this case, they have filled the nation. They filled this land, and they're residing in Goshen, which is a warm place. It might be almost as good as Destin for some of you. It might be almost as good as Gulf Shores. It's a warm place. It's a place with plenty of water. It's a place with plenty of places to eat. It's a place where it's perfect for the growth of a family into a nation, much like an incubator. You, you take eggs from your chickens or your geese or your ostrich or whatever, and you put them in this warm place. And while they're in that place, they have all the nutrients, they have all the warmth that they need, just the right conditions to multiply them. And now, in our passage today, many Bible scholars uh, figured out the math, and there are over three million total in the nation of Israel. Seventy to over three million, uh, 400 years. So Goshen's been an incubator. It's a place of their growth. It's a place where they've been able to flourish and prosper. But what happens in birth? The book of Exodus is the birth story of a nation. Think back to the birth story, maybe of your children or people you've known. Every year that my children have a birthday, we celebrate, which is every year, we celebrate their birthdays. Sometimes you say things, you're like, that doesn't make sense. But every year when we celebrate, when we celebrate our children's birthdays, we recount their birth story. I tell them what I was experiencing. My wife tells them what she was experiencing. And as they tell that story, they're reminded that we've been there since the beginning. The book of Exodus is the birth story of a nation. But what happens is that there's conception. We'll, we'll leave it at that. And then there's this, this growth and cells multiply. You might say from one to millions or billions. And DNA is in there and involved. And there's all this weaving together, Psalm 139 says. God wove us together in our mother's womb before we, he knew us in that place. And he was involved in it. But then something interesting happens. As the child grows, makes the mom uncomfortable, makes the child uncomfortable, and before you know it, the womb that was a very comfortable, wonderful, growing place becomes uncomfortable. And it starts to inflict pressure. And there are birth pangs. And then, you know, the most dangerous point at a person's life is not when they become 16 and they get their license. It's not when they decide whether or not they're going to make dumb decisions. The most dangerous place for your life is the birth canal. Because when a child leaves the womb and goes through the birth canal, uh, then there's a lot of risk involved. The mom's at risk and the baby's at risk. And then they exit, and guess what? For the baby, it's the most uncomfortable they have ever been. And if you don't think so, you've never seen how much they cry. They cry till they're blue in the face, purple in the face, red in the face. Babies that have gone through the birth canal, by the way, when they first come out, be careful what you say. Because they are absolutely beautiful, and they're absolutely creepy looking. 
just being honest. Now, I will never say that when I meet a new baby. I will always say, that is a baby. (laughs) Isn't he cute? Isn't she cute? Not answering that. Because right now, I saw my children change colors three times, at least. But what I'm saying is, for Exodus and for the nation of Israel, before it gets better, it's going to get worse. Because this place that God meant for them to be fruitful and multiply, he has to make it uncomfortable so they're willing to exit the womb. So they're willing to move on to the next phase. Anytime God tries to do something amazing in your life, before it gets amazing, it gets uncomfortable. Because if it stayed comfortable, you wouldn't move. You would stay there because why would you leave? And so, verse 8. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we are. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply and it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us and so go up out of the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens, and they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied. So here's the problem. Everything's great. They've grown. They've multiplied. They're a nation now. They're such a large nation that even the world power at that time, Egypt, they're a little nervous. We need to keep them under our thumb because if we don't, they'll rise up and overtake us. Uh, Now, problem one, verse eight, the new king did not know Joseph. Why is this a problem? Because the only reason they were allowed to be blessed and to move into Egypt was because Joseph was such a blessing to Egypt. Joseph was the one that came up with the new economic stimulus plan, if you will. Seven years of famine are coming. So we're going to store up grain. We're going to overtax you so that there will be enough food for the years of famine. And so when Joseph had favor with the Pharaoh, he said, why don't you let my family come and live here and they can live and thrive here with me. And because the Pharaoh had been so blessed by Joseph, Pharaoh was like, sounds great. They can live in Goshen. Verse nine, the next problem, the Israelites were more numerous and more mighty than themselves. No big deal, right? They served the Pharaoh. They served the Egyptians. We don't mind that you're a large nation as long as you remember who's in charge. Well, what if they stop remembering who's in charge? If they're more numerous than the Egyptians, if they're stronger than the Egyptians, all of a sudden their existence is threatened. Verse 10, here's a major problem. They're a larger nation than us. They might join our enemies and then fight and then leave us. Well, there was a nation to the north of the Egyptians that was kind of a threat. They were growing. They were, they were looming large. And they were a nation called the Hittites. And the Hittites at this time were a threat to King Seti I. And so because he was nervous about them already, knowing that they, were, they had servants in their own quarter that were becoming numerous, they, he started to fear he would lose his own kingdom. 
And so he comes up with a plan to make sure that they remember, the Israelites, who the boss is. And so in verse 11, it says his plan is to afflict and to burden them with tasks that benefited Egypt. We'll have them build our supply cities, and that will keep them in check. The problem with this, verse 12, the more they afflicted them, the more the Israelites multiplied and grew, and they were in dread of the children of Israel. So the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. I had to look that word up. Rigor. What's rigor? And they made their lives bitter with hard bondage, in mortar, in brick, and in all manner of service in the field. All their service in which they made them serve was with rigor. So Egypt feared the children of Israel, which is interesting. They were afraid of their own slaves. They were afraid of them because they flourished under rigor-filled, forced labor. The more labor they gave them, the more they whipped them, the more the people of Israel grew. Rigor means harshness, severity, and cruelty. So the more cruel they were to the Israelites, the more the Israelites actually flourished. They couldn't afflict them enough to squash their growth. It's kind of interesting. Well, for an example of this in the New Testament, turn to Acts chapter 5. Acts chapter 5. In the book of Acts, we see the birth of another nation, but it's not a worldly nation. It's the nation of God. It's the kingdom of heaven. And as they have had their inception, they see the birth of this nation on the day of Pentecost. Peter's preaching and 3,000 believers, they are filled with the Holy Spirit and they start testifying about Jesus. And in Acts chapter 5, as they continue to grow, uh, the other people around them that want to maintain power and control over the nation of Israel are the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests. And they have afflicted the people for years to keep them under their thumbs. And they've burdened them with commands that, frankly, God did not command. And as they're doing this, they're telling the people that are Jesus people, no longer preach in the name of Jesus. Stop healing people in the name of Jesus. It's blasphemy. They're inflicting burdens. They're, they're oppressing them. They're telling, you need to shut up about this Jesus. We killed him to silence him, and you guys are continuing to proclaim things in his name. Stop it. But the more they inflict them, the more they afflict them, the more they burden them, the more they tell them to shut up, the more they beat them, the more they prosper and grow as a community. And in Acts chapter 5, we won't read all of it. It says in verse 28, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you filled Jerusalem with your doctrine, and you intend to bring this man, Jesus' blood, on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. See, they had been told, no longer preach in the name of Jesus. And Romans 13 says that we're supposed to obey authority. 
as unto the Lord. Well, there's a time where we have to disobey in respect. And he says here, we ought to obey God rather than men. He says, the God of our fathers raised up Jesus, whom you murdered by hanging on a tree. And him God has exalted to his right hand to be prince and savior, to give repentance to Israel and the forgiveness of sins. And guess what? We're his witnesses to these things. And so also is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And then if you fast forward, there's this interjection between one of the teachers of the day, Gamaliel, and his disciples. And so he basically advises them, you know what, if this thing is of God, then we may not need to fight against it because we could find ourselves fighting against God himself. But if it's not of God and it's just some insurrection from our day, it'll eventually wane anyway. It will disappear. It will dissipate. And so Gamaliel says, leave him alone. Who cares? And so they agreed with Gamaliel and they called the disciples whom they had thrown in prison, whom they had put before a grand jury, and they could find no charges to stick against them. And since they kept, um, actually there was a story in there I kind of skipped, they were able to get out of prison miraculously after they had been in prison for preaching in the name of Jesus. So they go into the prison, they're like, hey, go get those prisoners out. And when the guards go in there, they're like, they, they got out last night. Uh, they're nowhere to be found. And so they put them up to trial again, because guess what they did when they got out of prison? They went back to the same place they'd been preaching the day before, and they began to proclaim the miraculous works of God in the name of Jesus. The thing they were in prison for, they went back and did it some more. And so since they can't imprison them, and they can't silence them, verse 41 says, Verse 40 says, they called for the apostles, the apostles show up, and they charge them and they beat them. They afflict them physically. They command them that they should not speak in the name of Jesus anymore, again, and they let them go. Because if you can't keep people in prison, why throw them in prison? But verse 41 says, they departed from the presence of the council and look at their response to being beaten, imprisoned, and told to shut up. They rejoice that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for the name of Jesus. How do you defeat a group of people that are this crazy? How do you, you can't afflict them enough to keep them from multiplying their message. How do you afflict them enough? The more that you try to smash them, the more that they scatter and multiply. It's like an infestation of bugs, you know? And the reality is they they couldn't be stopped because their God was not going to stop. And so all that to say, their trials actually fuel their growth. And I don't know how many of you like trials, but when God wants to grow you, that's how he stretches you. I'm sorry. I wish it were different. But if you want to grow in the depth and understanding and in your relationship with Jesus, understand this, that God will send things that make you uncomfortable so that you're no longer comfortable in your circumstances and it's meant for your good. He loves you too much to leave you where you are. 
Any good shepherd, do the research, his job mainly is to keep the sheep moving. Sheep prefer to stay in one spot. Sheep prefer to drink from the same water. But eventually, when sheep hang out in the field too long, they fill it with manure, and it contaminates their food source and contaminates their water source. And so good shepherds keep the sheep moving. They make them just uncomfortable enough to where they can be healthy and fruitful. And that's what God is doing for his people. So, verse 15. I skipped some stuff here. Oh, there it is. They made their lives bitter, verse 14, with hard bondage, brick and mortar, and all manner of service in the field. And all their service which they made them serve was with rigor. It was cruel. Verse 15, Then the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. See, if you can't stop them by inflicting them or afflicting them, what you can do is just kill their strength at the source. So he spoke to the Hebrew midwives, of whom the name of one was Shiphrah, and the name of the other was Puah. And he said, When you do the duties of a midwife for the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stools, if it's a son, you shall kill them. But if it's a daughter, then she shall live. But the midwives feared God, and they did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but instead saved the male children alive. And so the problem is, affliction doesn't keep them down, it only increases their strength. His plan ordered the death of newborn children, specifically the boys, cut their strength off at the source. But he didn't do it himself. He basically commands the Hebrew midwives to do it. And because they fear God instead of the king, they ought to do what pleases God and not what pleases men. And so they have a faith-filled response. Faith's response to the world's commands to do wickedness is, no, we ought to obey God rather than men. So the midwives feared God, so they disobeyed the king of Egypt to protect life, which was a midwife's job. The midwife is there for the child and for the mom to protect life instead of ending it. So, I've mentioned this already today, but Romans 13, go and read it, instructs believers to submit to governing authorities. Even goes as far as saying that God has placed them in authority to mete out justice, to to make circumstances that we can live in peaceably. But, Though we are to obey those in authority over us, um, as long as they don't command us to break God's law, which is a higher law. And in this case, it was the murdering of the innocent. Now, think about this. This takes faith for midwives. They've been instructed specifically, not just by authorities, but by the highest authority in the land to kill the newborn boys. So this was a risk to their own lives. It cost them to obey God. It was not comfortable to obey God. And it usually, by the way, isn't. Obeying God rather than men sounds like this valiant thing to do until it's you. And then it causes you to say, where is my hope? Who's going to protect me if I obey God? God will. 
but it doesn't always mean that he's going to protect us in this life. Many times God allows his servants to be persecuted and, and hurt and mocked and even crushed. And Jesus himself was murdered brutally according to the will of God for the benefit of others. And yet they obey God, they risk their own lives. And then verse 18, the Pharaoh says, the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing? Why have you saved the male children alive? Verse 19, the midwife said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women. For they are lively and they give birth before the midwives come to them. So we have one of two things that have happened here. God's done something miraculous in giving strength to the women, and they are giving birth before the midwife gives there. Or the midwives are flat out lying. <laughs> They've been there, and over and over they're, they're protecting them, and they're saying, well, uh, I don't know what to tell you. We weren't there. Uh, they could be lying here. But what I love about this is that though they are lying, um, they are protecting life. And so I'm thankful that many times God calls me to do things. And I would love to say that I do everything 100% faith-filled. I do the right thing the right way. But I love that in grace, that God sometimes accepts our, our not full obedience to him. I think that God has called us to do the right thing the right way every time, and yet he will use those that are willing to do the right thing, sometimes even the wrong way. Here they might have been lying. And so the midwives, I think, were lying, and they were possibly breaking God's law, but God doesn't spend time going, I can't believe you lied. Instead, he celebrates what they did right. They did it righteously. The Bible isn't condoning sin here, but God does reward their righteous deed. And if you turn with me to Hebrews in chapter 11, in verse 6, no, starting in verse 1, Hebrews 11, it says there that faith is the substance of things hoped for, and it's the evidence of things that are not seen. And then in verse 6, it says, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For they who come to God must believe that he is, and he's a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. They knew it was right to trust that doing the right thing, God would take care of them for living righteously and doing the right thing. And in verse 20, it says there, <clears throat> Therefore, God dealt well with the midwives. It doesn't say that he punished them. It says that he dealt well with them. And the people multiplied and they grew mightily. And so it was because the midwives feared God that he provided for the midwives households for them. So their act of faith helped God's people continue to multiply and, he beca and they became mighty. And because they feared God, he provided households for them. What's that mean? Well, typically, the ladies that fulfilled the duty of being a midwife, they did that because they either couldn't have their own children or 
because they did not have their own children. They were single. They were either single or they were barren. And so in fulfilling this role and then protecting life, God gave them children. So to those that didn't have children or couldn't have children, I believe that he actually blessed them with families. He blessed the childless with families. They were faithful in the small things, and God made them faithful over many. He gave them their own families. He could trust them with other people's children, and therefore they proved themselves to be trustworthy, to be stewards over their own children. It's a beautiful picture. And so two names, Shifra and Pua, are mentioned, but I mentioned to you earlier that I believe these were over three million people. So no doubt there were not just two midwives for over three million people. So my thought is that the Holy Spirit has pushed these two names to the surface for a reason. Shifra means fair, comely, or beautiful. Pua actually means glitter or brilliance. And as I look at those two names, it made me think of Psalm chapter 36. Psalm chapter 36. Psalm chapter 36, verse, excuse me, chapter 37, verse 1, says, Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity, for they are temporary. They shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on God's faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him. And these Hebrew midwives, that's what they've done. They, they've, they've not fretted because of evildoers, even the king of the land. Uh, they're recognizing that they serve a king that will outlive the king of the land. They're trusting in the Lord, and they were, are doing the right thing. They're doing good, righteousness in the days of evil. They've delighted themselves in the Lord himself, not what he can give them, but they've delighted themselves in his ways. And because of that, he's given them the desires of their heart. Verse 5 says, commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness your righteousness is proved not in what you say you believe. Your righteousness is, is proved in living out what you believe. And he says there, when you commit your way to him, he shall bring forth your righteousness as the light. And that's what made me think of these names, beauty and brilliance or glitter. Now you're thinking glitter if you've ever done a craft project in your house. Glitter is not beautiful because it will never, ever go away. It will be on your face. It will be in the cracks of your trim. It will be on your kitchen table. It just doesn't go away. I'm over it. He sh in another translation, it says, he shall bring forth your righteousness, and it will be radiant like the dawn. Radiant. And your justice as the noonday. It shall shine like the noonday sun. 
Now, I don't know about you guys, but the dawn and the noonday sun make me think of beauty and radiance and brilliance and glitter. Just makes me think of just righteousness shining like the sun. And so, no doubt, Shifra and Puah, because of the way that they live, because of the way they did righteousness, their righteousness shined forth like the noonday sun. Now, my question for you as we look back at Exodus in chapter 22, it goes on to say there, Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, Every son who is born you shall cast into the river, and every daughter you shall save alive. So since the midwives wouldn't do the dirty deed, he talks to his people. And he says, okay, you guys are the taskmasters. You're the ones whipping them. You're the ones afflicting them and burdening them with my labors. So when you see a a newborn son, I want you to go and kill it. I want you to kill the strength of this nation because I want to squash them and keep them under my rule. So why does the king persist so? We've talked about the practical reasons. Why was destroying Israel so important to this king? Well, number one, self-preservation. Self-preservation is a a big motivator for kings. Uh, Self-preservation is also a big motivator for each one of us in our little kingdoms. We, We want to be thought of highly. We want to be looked at as strong. We want to be respected And so history tells us that this king feared an uprising of his enemies, the Hittites, and and of course he didn't want Israel joining them against him. So we know he had practical motivation. But I also believe that this particular squashing of Israel was satanically inspired. And why do I say that? Well, Satan knows that God promised to bring a deliverer from his chosen people. Genesis chapter 3 has this has the fall. It's like the worst and the best chapter in all of the beginnings. And in the fall, God promises, I'm going to bring enmity between your seed, Satan, and the seed of the woman. So those who would follow the rebellion against God, and then the seed of the woman, which we know to be uh, Jesus, born of the Virgin Mary. And he's going to be the deliverer for all mankind from the enslavery, the bondage, the affliction, the burdensomeness of sin. And so Satan knows that God promised to bring a deliverer from not just any people, but from the Hebrew people, this nation that he's called out. And we see this in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1 through 3. He's promised not only to bless Abraham, but also to bless the entire world through the descendants of Abraham, this foretelling of the Messiah that would come. So he's trying to stop him from fulfilling that promise. If God can, excuse me, if Satan can squash this nation, then he can make God break his promises to a people. He can make God a liar and therefore undo all the covenants that God's made. And and it's not isolated in the Bible. We see this over and over again. Haman and Esther. He doesn't just want to kill Mordecai, who is the only one that really has sinned against Haman, but he says, I want you to kill Haman and the entire nation of the Jews. Let's squash them. Let's erase them from history. Herod in Matthew chapter 2, when we read the Christmas story, we remember the birth of Jesus 
when he finds out that there's this Messiah that's been foretold and the wise men come to worship him, he thinks his kingdom's being threatened. And so Herod says, if we can't find this specific young man who's been born just now, kill all of the Hebrew children and all of the nation that have been born in the last two years. Wow, good grief. Satanically inspired. Hitler kills six million Jews. Why the Jews? Why not any of the other nations that have been involved in their nation's history in Germany? Why not? Satanically inspired. And then Satan himself tempted Jesus, not only in the wilderness when he fasted for 40 days, and did not succumb to temptation. But then in the Garden of Gethsemane, he comes to him and tempts him. Tempts him to no longer go to the cross, which was the only way for mankind to be saved. And then in Revelation chapter 2 that we studied just a couple years ago, he'll attempt one last time to destroy the remnant of the Israelites because the Bible foretells that in the eternal kingdom that's set up on earth, that there will be Jewish people involved in that kingdom. And if that's not going to happen, then God's broken his promise. He's not fulfilled his promise. So that the Israelites will be, would be squashed before Christ's return. And then also, if God can squash out these, or excuse me, I keep saying that, if Satan can squash out the young men that are born, into the nation of Israel at this time, he'll also squash out the person we're going to read about in the next chapter, Moses. Moses is going to be a type of Christ. He will deliver the children of Israel. He will be the one that God has chosen to say to Pharaoh, let my people go. And then by his hand, he will perform miraculous signs, judging the Egyptians and then bringing out the Israelites with many of their possessions to call them out to be a new nation, the deliverer, the savior of the Israelite people. And so all that to be said, that's why he's so literally hell-bent on destroying Israel. But I want to come back to this. What makes the Israelites so fruitful and powerful under oppression and threats of their enemies? Is it their strategy to fend off their enemies' oppression? No. They didn't have a strategy. They were all too busy laboring and working to be able to have meetings about a strategy. They were working, believe it or not, many more hours than you and I have ever worked. They were working seven twelves. They were working till they could not even talk to their spouses when they got home. They would get home, go to sleep, wake up, and start all over again. They were burdened because their boss forced them to. Number two, they, was it because of their 100% faithfulness to his law? No. Uh, the midwives, we think, might have even been lying about what they had done. Was it because their strength to fight back against their enemies? No, they were exhausted from labor. They had the thumb of their leader over them. I submit to you, the reason they were fruitful and powerful under oppression and threats of their enemies, because their faithful God was still with them. (coughs) Excuse me. What's interesting about the book of Exodus, 
what makes the Israelites so fruitful and powerful under their oppression and the threats of their enemy is because their faithful God who is with them and promised to be with them. They were hard-pressed, but not crushed. They were persecuted, but not forsaken. They were struck down, but not destroyed. They were blessed beyond the curse of even the burdens that the world could oppress them with. The worst that the world could give them actually benefited them. And that's the same thing is true for you and I. The worst that this world can inflict us with will actually cause us to grow. What the, what the enemy means for evil, what the enemy means to crush us with, will actually cause us to flourish. And for many, many generations of Israelites, for the rest of their lives, read through the Psalms. Over and over again, the Israelites, when they worship, they remember their birth story. They remember how God delivered them in their most weak point. When they were not yet a nation, God provided a place for them to grow. Then he, in their affliction, brought them from the affliction into a birthing place. And when they were birthed into a nation, God brought them through a dangerous place. He's going to part the Red Sea. He's going to take them through on dry land. And he's going to take them to a land that he promised to show Abram. And he's going to fulfill all of his promises. I want to challenge you guys this morning. What's your birth story? Have you recounted lately in the middle of your burdens, in the middle of your affliction, day in and day out, have you recounted God's faithfulness to you? Do you remember when you were born again? Do you remember when you became this new creation in Christ? Are you recounting that story to yourself? Are you telling your family this story when you get afflicted, remembering that God was faithful then, He's surely going to be faithful now. Do you know the people that you go to church with? Do you know their birth story? I want to challenge you to ask the people around you, how did you become a Christian? What did it look like when you became a new creation in Christ? What did God deliver you from? What was, the, what was your Egypt exodus story? I think you'll be surprised and encouraged by many of the stories around you. We have a lot more in common in our birth stories than you think. Recount them over and over again. Tell them until you don't remember who you've told, and then tell them again. Because it will give you joy. It will remember, help you remember where you came from. But it will also challenge you to think through, have I actually been born again? Did God actually bring me out of this world into a new life with Christ? And then you might even inspire somebody to actually give their relationship to the Lord. You might inspire somebody to be born again. They didn't even know that they'd never been. So, Lord Jesus, thank you for the comfort that you give us because of the Holy Spirit. And thank you for this story, this history of the Israelite nation. You made them comfortable so they would multiply. And then you made them uncomfortable so they would multiply even more. So Father, forgive us when we grumble. Forgive us when we uh, complain. Forgive us when we, uh, in our comfort, don't want to keep moving. Move us to areas where we're uncomfortable so that we can grow and be fruitful. 
and help us to recount these stories to one another, to increase our faith, to multiply our number, and to tell the world that we must obey God rather than men and because we know he'll be faithful to us. So Father, we love you. We thank you for your Holy Spirit-inspired scriptures. And I pray that as we continue and as we close with worship, Lord, remind us of our birth story. Perhaps some of us here today are going through some times of discomfort, maybe some affliction, maybe we're carrying burdens. Father, remember, help us to remember our birth story so that we can in our affliction today be reminded of the God who is faithful, the God who is still with us just like he was back then. And we'll give you all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.